This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. On our panel today, we have Eric Berry. Hey there. And David Richards. Hey, hey. And I'm David Kamira. And today we are talking with two special guests, Justin Searles. Howdy. And Josh Greenwood. Hey, everybody. So I don't know if we've ever done two interviews, or at least not on the time that I've been on the podcast, uh, done two guests at the same time. So this should be interesting. At least you guys work for the same company. But uh, Justin, would you mind giving us a bit of background, who you work for, how people know you on the internet and all that good stuff? Well, uh, who Josh and I work for is a software agency called Test Double. Uh, we're like, a, you know, one of the first, I think, like fully 100% remote software consultancies. So we work with clients all over the place. Basically, our pitch is just if your team's looking for senior software developers and having a hard time hiring full timers uh, or are interested in some like, you know, additional expertise from outsiders who are really good at Ruby and JavaScript and, and, and all that, um, work with us uh, on a contract basis. And we just kind of become members of your team uh, remotely. Uh, so that's what Josh and I both do, uh, there, although Josh actually gets to do that and I get to sit in a lot of, uh, sales meetings. Awesome. And you're from Columbus, Ohio, right, Justin? Yep. I live in Columbus. Uh, and, uh, uh, I, I'm actually a Michigander, but I like relocated here 11 years ago cause I, I wanted an economy with jobs in it. Uh, so I'm kind of a reluctant Ohioan. Yeah. You just lost a bit of, uh, respect for me. Sorry. Uh, I'm a big Buckeye fan, so, uh, or I'm a Buckeye fan. I wouldn't say big, but no, it's all right. I still like you. And Josh, uh, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I am based in Louisville, Kentucky. I actually grew up in Northern Kentucky, which is basically just a suburb of Cincinnati. So I'm a native Kentucky and, and, and like Justin, proud of it. Um, I, uh, I also, like Justin said, work for Test Double and get to work on uh, clients all over the U.S. and uh, have an absolute blast doing it. Um, I really like to write Ruby and Rails. Uh, lately, I've been getting really into Elm and I'm super excited about the direction that's heading. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Awesome. And you two recently did a conference together uh, titled There's Nothing New. You want to talk about that talk? Uh, I watched it the other day, and it was actually really entertaining. Uh, I really liked the uh, the history and the progression of things, and it gave me a lot of flashbacks as well as made me cry a bit. So uh, you want to talk about your talk a bit? Well, you know, you, you mentioned that this is the first time you guys have had a pair interview, and the reason is that the, the, the we're here to talk about that, that that talk and some of the research and maybe some of the nostalgia that went into it where uh, we, we did that as co-presenters. And normally, co-presenting a talk is, is really challenging. 
Uh, and so we just had very discreet um, responsibilities. Like my responsibility was to provide color commentary and just criticize everything. And Josh's responsibility was to do hundreds of hours of research and watch a bunch of conference talks and select the, the kind of greatest hits from the last uh, uh, 15 years of uh, Ruby's history in the West. Sounds fair to me. <laughs> yeah. Justin uh, also thought it sounded fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what happens when you're the boss, right? You get to delegate. <laughs> so. Right, which is why I need uh, Josh here today, because uh, I don't think I could really represent the talk very well without without him and his gigantic spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah, when the uh, DHH uh, example blog app came up, I think I just about lost it. Uh, I had seen that a long time ago, and I had almost forgotten about it. But then you guys uh, re-brought it back up. So thank you for that. It was uh, really great. Yeah, there's a lot of nuggets in there that are just, um, you know, uh, tickle nostalgia of people who've been in the Rails community since, you know, 2004 through 2007. Uh, you know, one of them that, that Josh found that I'd forgotten about was this uh, online Apple.com ad that they did with, with 37 Signals. And they interviewed, you know, Jason and David uh for it and it's the cheesiest thing in the in the world is uh the links to, to this and everything else you reference are up on our blog page around the talk but um josh uh, uh just so people have like a little bit more context could you explain like a little bit of the, the purpose of the talk because it wasn't just to be a nostalgia fest yeah definitely um so where where we were coming from on this talk was uh we were kind of positioning it as uh justin was someone who's been in the ruby community longer than i have and one of the ways we were thinking about this was I had a whole bunch of questions about Ruby is the way that it is today. And I wonder why that is. So some examples of questions were like, why does everyone use Vim and Emacs? And like, no one's using IDEs, like all these other people, these other technologies using these really cool IDEs. Um, why does everyone care about testing so much? Um, why, where are people coming from with like conventional for configuration? So where I was coming from is I came in at like 2012. So like I came in and my first job, I was already using Git. Um, we were using Ruby. Um, it, it was just kind of standard, standard practice to me. All the things that we do today, I didn't really get the experience of the pain and the, the things that brought those into fruition. And so we kind of started with a bunch of questions like that, that I mentioned. And Justin, I would ask Justin, like, Hey, why, why is it the way that it is? And he'd be like, um, you know, this, this, and this, you know, go check out the, this person's work, go see, um, go, you know, read all the blog posts from this. Um, and we kind of collectively together started to realize that there's a ton of history, um, that has kind of been, um, I don't want to say forgotten, but we don't, we don't revisit as often as we should. And there's, there's so much learnings in the community and, um, people have, have built up quite uh, quite the community and we wanted to understand like all of the in underpinnings of it so that we could um, not repeat the same mistakes. Anything you want to add to that, Justin? No, I mean, uh, um, I'm actually really curious about the panel members. Um, you know, if they saw the talk, their take on it, and if, if they didn't, you know, um, uh, just kind of how they feel about how well uh, you know, Ruby as a community is at retrospecting and placing the new things that we do in, inside, inside their historical context in a way that's like digestible to especially new people. When I was 
when I started Ruby, it was back in 2008. And if you remember back then, they had a, a website that was dedicated to how many days has it been since the last Ruby drama? Do you remember that? Oh, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think as a community, we've really grown up quite a bit. Um, we've learned a lot from the exit with uh, Why the Lucky Stiff. We learned a lot from from all of the dramas that happened. We learned a lot when when Merb and, and Rails came together and all of a sudden it became not as popular. And I think that we've learned a lot as far as not abandoning gems as quickly as we have been and be more supportive of that. But I think that's more over the last couple of years, last few years, that that's become really more of a thing. Um, have you also seen that, that, uh, progression? Oh, I could, I could for sure see the progression as I was watching talks, like the, the maturity level and the, um, the, the things that like, so if I would watch a talk from like 2008, it was a lot more like exploratory. A lot of the talks were, they were like, Hey, this, here's this idea. Like, I'm just kind of thinking about it. I'm poking at this gem. Um, here's this thing I, you know, I built this weekend, um, once you started getting closer to more recent time, it was more of, okay, we've, we've got a lot of these existing applications. We've, we've used this gem. Um, here's, here's how to decouple that or here's how to use it in a more effective way or here's a good way to, re, you know, refactor your application. You can kind of see the progression of, um, a lot of people starting with Ruby in the beginning and just doing experiments and playing around and a lot of that. And, um, it, it seemed at least from the talks that, that I saw, there was certainly a progression towards maturity and it kind of, it kind of mirrored maybe the maturity of the applications that the average, the average presenter was working on at the time. No, that's really insightful. Huh? And, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with the available resources. You know, back when I started, you know, around, uh, 2009, 2010, there were not that many resources out there online to learn Ruby. You had the guides, and then you had Railscast, which was a godsend, you know, from Ryan Bates. And other than that, you had to basically discover it yourself, you know, uh, read a book or, you know, just dive into IRB and try to figure out, you know, how do you do this? What's the best way to do this? What's going to be faster? And I think that in some ways, uh, we've lost a lot of that. I think we're going to start seeing a shift in the Rails community and Ruby community where people aren't using Ruby because they love it. They're doing it because that's where the jobs that they want are. And I think we're going to start seeing people who are coming, you know, uh, more new age, uh, starting off with Rails, starting off with Ruby but they don't really have that foundational knowledge of experimenting and diving into why does this work or whatever. They're just relying on the Rails magic to happen. And I think that's going to hurt the community for a bit of time until we refocus and you know start getting back to uh, where we started from. So I'm going to... Uh jump in and push back on that a little bit because uh it's easy it's easy to lament that from our vantage point but when part of our research we interviewed um Dave Thomas and Chad Fowler and both of them expressed multiple times this um almost period of grieving that they went through with the rise of rails because what it marked was like the death of that fun we love ruby because we're all about 
PLT or programming language design. Uh, we're doing really, really creative and bizarro things. And, you know, Dave called out explicitly that as soon as, uh, you know, Rails came along, there was this sudden, like, urgent capitalistic need to provide educational resources to train an army of, you know, web developers. Um, and, and, you know, Chad viewed that as a really big turning point where the community sort of, I, he, he was started by using language like died on the, on the phone with me. Um, but I think I was able to get him back to back away from that a bit. And in here, he's talking about, you know, 2005, 2006, before I was seriously involved in Ruby at all. And I'm sure where, you know, the floodgates opened and a whole bunch of like Ruby's equivalent of the, uh, the eternal September, uh, began and, and all these novices flooded in, uh, who are now, you know, relatively old hat complaining about, you know, uh, how commoditized maybe Ruby has become in the, in, in the broader market. Yeah. And I, you know, I was, definitely I was there for that. I, I, uh, I was there for that. I, I was, uh, I came in in 2004 and, um, I was looking for a specific, well, Rails. I was building some stuff in PHP at NBC. And, um, so I didn't get in on the, the love of the, of the language the way others did. Um, but I was surrounded by that, which I enjoyed. It, it made me feel confident. Um, but it was interesting because I, I didn't really have the, the luxury of, <laughs> being able to just goof around and learn things I, I needed to, to do things. So I was part of that killing the language, I guess, or, you know, in those first few years where, you know, it had to make sense. We used to have those conversations around how are we going to get paid to, to do rails or Ruby really? Uh, we liked Ruby, but, but it, you know, it was this hard, I think compromise that was hard for people that loved the language and for what they could try and, and the freedom it gave us to just build things. And, um, yeah, it's kind of a weird, I guess that commercial thing comes in and can ruin everything <laughs> or it changes it. it. It, it poisons the well a little bit. Yeah. But at the same time, it also does promote some stability. You know, uh, I think that, uh, with gems like devise or some other really popular ones, you don't have to worry about your authentication or pundit for authorization or can, can, can. You know, those things are pretty well established now. So I think one great thing about it uh, is that new developers can come in and start being productive faster. So, but I still, I don't know if they would still have a lot of the foundational knowledge unless they went on and did their own research. But I think that we are now at the stable stable part of rails where it's not going anywhere it's pretty much here to stay and, yeah. and i think that's actually like a big motivator behind this talk was um i'd given a talk uh uh last year uh sort of like a satirical talk where i was filling in for sam fippen uh that was ostensibly about rspec but it was really about the maturity in the ruby community and how we've reached this point where uh you know our, our most creative and, and, and kind of colorful and artistic, uh, and exploratory, uh, days are in a sense behind us because we've like reached the point where we've solved most of these problems. And so there's just a different set of people in the room. But it also means that like if people have a creative itch that they want to scratch, they're, they might be inclined to look outside of Ruby and its community altogether. Uh, and so the purpose of this talk is to, like look back on ways in which um, you know, people were inspired by Ruby, the language, uh, fell in love with it and did kind of creative and thoughtful things or, you know, thought about, you know, principles like path of least surprise and, um, values like programmer happiness that, uh, 
you really can't find analogs in other uh, uh, programming languages, and it's really kind of core to the foundation of what made Ruby Ruby, but doesn't get talked about to people who are joining Ruby these days, where it's just another option for the you know their MVC framework language of choice. You know, one thing I've noticed, though, too, is the export of that, which has been, I think, beautiful because uh, so I've uh, done a lot of startups in my career. And um, at one of them, I was with some Ruby developers I knew and we joined up with some Java and Scala developers. And so we were talking about some of these principles and and they were just kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Like it was easy to export these good ideas that they hadn't heard before. It, it was good for a startup community where in, in, in an organization that's got to prove itself every day, um, these principles actually have a lot of traction. They, they, they change how we think. They, they, they get us tighter to tight delivery loops. Um, they make it easier to consume what we've already built. And so um, I, I like that we went there. And it's true, there's different people in the room now. But when that goes outside of the Ruby community, it, it also does well, continues to do well. And I think it's also good that we're now starting to get options. So instead of saying, you know, this is how you have to do something like file uploading, you know, before you had uh, Dragonfly or Paperclip, you know, but then things like Carrier Wave and Shrine from Jenko came out, and now you have Active Storage, which is baked right into Rails. So I think it's awesome that we are starting to reach, uh, or we have reached that point of maturity where... There is a preferred way to do something, but you have options. You don't have to follow this one path or this one way because that's your only uh, way to do it without writing your own library. And then with the introduction of uh, the JavaScript storm that's been taking us by surprise, you know, I'm sure there's been two new JavaScript frameworks released since we started this call. And uh, I've been playing around with stimulus quite a bit. And I think that is a another great option uh, for interacting with the DOM. So if you haven't played around with that a bit, I definitely encourage you to check it out because I've added it into some of my existing applications and it took me a few minutes to do. You know, I read through the docs, uh, I recorded a screencast on it, and I literally was able to add in Stimulus JavaScript Framework add in my components and get it up and running in just a matter of minutes. And it did exactly what I needed to do without the complexities of something like React. Let me, let me ask you guys a question. Um, I, I want to bring it back to test level a little bit. You are approached for all sorts of different projects. I'd like to kind of dig in a little bit and find out how, how much of what you do is completely in Ruby and Rails. How often do you have to branch out from there? And do you, are you able to utilize or do you utilize the templates and all that stuff that allows you to quickly build a pre-made, um, basically a, 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 an alpha app? Um, I, I'd like to know your process. I've been fascinated by you guys. I'd, I'd like to know your process on how you can do that so effectively. But do you also have to branch out of Rails because of one way or another? And are you concerned that perhaps in the future um, – Ruby and Rails might not be as relevant, and how does um, how does Test Double plan on handling that? Oh man, yeah, this is a this is a question that I wish people asked me more often because uh, I I agree I think it's a really important series of distinctions um, that 
you can look at different consulting companies and they all kind of have their different focus and specialty. But what mm -hmm. ours has always been is that our people tend to be really um, senior. You know, I think like average years experience is like 10. Um, mm -hmm. Most people came up through like Java.net. A lot of us spent time as like agile coaches before we found Ruby, worked through Ruby and then, you know, got excited about what you could do with like Ajax and front end JavaScript and all the various frameworks there. And so um, in general, our people are, you know, they come to the table as polyglots um, and looking for the best tool for the job. And so, you know, like we've got to answer your first question, we've got probably half our portfolio is primarily Ruby and Rails and the other half is split between Node.js or just pure front end JavaScript. We've got some Elm projects, some Elixir projects. Um, hmm. And the reason that we don't necessarily have like a pre-baked template for like how to build something quickly is because we're not really a build you an MVP kind of shop. Um, we can do that, but there's probably firms that are like better optimized for that. Like uh, one that comes to mind right away is like Alpha Django in Ann Arbor where Steve Schwartz really optimizes for getting people off the ground quickly. We're more like a, a staff integration firm. We like work with existing teams who already have big complex problems because we really like to chew on, you know, that complexity of the application once it's gotten big and there, there's a bunch of technical debt and the testing story is starting to create pain because we've just got so much experience by visiting so many different teams that we're really good at untangling a lot of that stuff. And that's a lot more, I think, rewarding work because it's helping other developers uh, and businesses day-to-day uh, -day lives. But also it's like not as rote and repetitive or as repeatable as just like building a new Greenfield app over and over again. Right. Um, but the reason that we, you know, have been advocating teams use Ruby and Rails is because it's still the most productive, best tool for the job for lots of straightforward web applications. You know, our, our footprint is mostly like flyover states in the U.S., but there's just like a lot of blue chip companies that have a lot of like custom software needs that can be summarized as, you know, a handful of like backend admin people just need basic CRUD operations to automate some portion of their business. They don't need like a full blown single page app. They don't need to worry about the kind of like scaling problems that something like Elixir and Phoenix might solve. Like they just need something reliable that's conventional that like another developer could follow along and pick it up. And then what the what the world is telling them is everyone does JavaScript, so only hire JavaScript developers and everything is Node React, right. so only do that. And then I see all these startups incur nine months of developer churn and wheel reinvention over and over again to, to kind of reinvent the universe before they kind of sprinkle on their custom application on top, which was exactly the problem that Rails was invented to solve. But it's not Maybe maybe the whole point of this talk is like part of this theme that new does not equal good, but we are so geared to only look at the top of our social media feeds and the front page of Hacker News that anything that's old is thought of as bad or outdated or not, you know, applicable anymore when there's actually like lots of really, really valuable stuff that just isn't the newest thing. Uh, and so that's why we keep co coming back to this well uh, to, to try to help people re-engage with like why rails is still the best choice uh for for entire categories of applications even if it's not the trendy thing you know this takes me to a, a metaphor um another senior developer told me recently and i just keep thinking about this and i think it it's saying the same thing justin is saying which is uh, our, our mind is like a garden and so we have to maintain it and all the new the new the new it just keeps barraging our our our, our attention but we need to 
you know, see that or, or, or connect that with something we're doing um, so that we can make a, a decision. What are we after? You know, oh, you know, turns out Rails solved this a long time ago. Turns out I'm not going to need the scale that I'd kind of like to play with. Um, I'm just going to need a, a solid solution that somebody can inherit later. So those kinds of thinking, um, I tend to let myself get a little too ra- relaxed sometimes because I get excited about technology. And then I, I realize, no, my, my mind is a garden. I've got to maintain something that's going to be around for a while and and um, be responsible with with the ideas. I'd also add that I think Rails positions itself really, really nicely for the types of clients that we come into where um, we can, our, our hope is that we can leave um, at some point. We don't want to, you know, be here for forever. We want to position the team to be successful without us. And Rails is really nice. Ruby is really nice because there's there's generally less than five ways, I'll say, to write something. Um, we 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 tend to to use patterns. We tend to build things in a similar sort of way so that the next developer coming along doesn't have to. Uh, go through this minefield of figuring out how does this application work? Where do things live? Where do the files go? How are things named? Um, there's a very low, low barrier to entry and, and we really like it that way. Um, it kind of, uh, it, it positions itself nicely to um, focusing less on the technology and more about the domain that we're trying to solve for. Um, you know, maybe we're, maybe we're on a banking application or maybe we're in, in healthcare or something. Um, but we want to focus on that and not necessarily, hey, where do your controllers live? So, uh, Justin and Josh, uh, when you guys get a new contract, how long do your contracts usually last for? And what, uh, because you guys are an agency and you do get exposed to new types of applications quite often, what are your secrets? Uh, or so-called secrets to quickly onboard one of your developers and get them integrated into a team, getting familiar with the code base and all that good stuff so that they can be useful uh, sooner than later. I think um, uh, two, two thoughts. I mean, to answer the question of like how long contracts are, they're always open-ended. Uh, you know, part of, I think, working in an agile way means that you need to um, accept that failure is an option. And so all of our contracts are week to week which is really great from a low risk uh, uh, contracting perspective and really difficult for my co-founder Todd and I from a financial forecasting perspective. But uh, in, in, in hindsight, we can look back and most of our engagements are three to nine months long because that's roughly how long it takes for us to come in, do productive work, build rapport, uh, and then leave some kind of lasting impact so that the team can kind of continue improving even after we've left it. Um, how we onboard quickly is like, I think we're just taking advantage of the fact that, um, and I, I'm sure a lot of people have heard the advice that when they're starting their career, consulting is a great way to get lots and lots of experience quickly. Uh, humans are pattern recognition machines. And if you give us a whole lot of projects and different teams to work on and different types of applications, uh, we start to, uh, you know, just without even realizing it, subconsciously develop a lot of pathways that shortcut our learning uh to to get us up and running and productive and able to you know frankly cope with a lot of different types of situations effectively uh it makes us stronger communicators and it also gives us a, a template for like drawing out uh you know lasting lessons and i think that's one reason why you see so many people who do a lot of agency work become prolific writers and speakers 
uh, uh, bloggers and thought lords uh, uh, sharing stuff because you start to see um, uh, the parts of uh, uh, any given project that are or any given team that are special and the ones that are kind of common wisdoms that, that seem to apply to lots of situations. I've also found that naturally I have this tendency that I want to go like breadth first on all problems and I want to like fully understand all problems and fully understand like all applications before I start to go depth first. And um, while I've been at Testable, I've had to I've had to push back on that and realize that I can be so much more effective when um, I can understand the problem and then just go depth first straight into that problem. And the breadth first kind of comes along. Um, and, and like Justin said, we're we got very good at pattern recognition and, and expanding that quickly. Um, but forcing myself to to just go straight down an application, you know, a, a particular call stack to figure out what what exactly I'm trying to do, you know, for this ticket, for this hour that I'm working on. Um, that's a that's a really effective tool. Uh, we also we also really enjoy pairing and um, use that as a tool as much as possible to ask as many questions as we can and and get up up and running very quickly. Cool. Has there ever been a project where you guys started on and you were like, wow, this is just too much? For you, the listeners of Ruby Rogues, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from... Just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, uh, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Well, it's uh, in, my, in my experience, that's every project, right? I think that part, part of the problem with um, uh, coming into any existing application is that the, the amount of just encoded complexity, all the naming and the layers and the the, the unconventional, but even, you know, justified or not decisions that went into it. It's, it represents this like tremendous embedded encoded body of knowledge. And you weren't there for those decisions. So you don't have the reference point. And for me, I remember when I was starting my consulting career, the first three or four years, I would just feel this all like I, I would literally get tight in the chest and it would struggle to breathe because I felt so this sense of immersion, like I wasn't going to be able to even tread water uh, and get by. Um, and some people nowadays, I, I think they, they might they might point at that and call it sort of like similar to the symptoms of imposter syndrome. But I think it's mm-hmm. uh, an entirely rational response to the extent of, of digital complexity that a lot of these applications accrue, like because there's just not a physical analog for them, really. Um, and so so, yeah, every almost every project has its own kind of aspects that are overwhelming. But even the more straightforward ones, they, they we have a certain capacity above and beyond, you know, maybe to the, the, the understanding of like the technical system. They almost always offer a whole lot of interesting people communication process 
organizational challenges, um, uh, and and even on the quote unquote like easier technical problems that we have to solve, uh, it usually just gives us more time to kind of help help grow and improve like that that team's ability to operate in other ways. Uh, and it seems like we we ping pong back and forth between those two um, those two modes. Where do you see um, Ruby in the next few years? as far as adoption, as far as capabilities? Because you've got a great big long tail of, of uh, projection. Where do you see it become, what do you see it becoming? Do you see, uh, do you see test double still pushing rails as the primary solution in, in three to five years? We certainly, what we don't see, uh, you know, maybe, maybe to the same point about like existing systems have so much embedded complexity, like something Rails has going for it is like a decade of, uh, thoughtful, uh, application of like how to make an integrated application framework that checks these like 150 absurd boxes that need to be checked in order to be a successful full blown application. And where a lot of time is being spent in open source is, uh, JavaScript frameworks where everything get, you know, kind of gets, pulled out from under you so frequently that like, I don't, I'm not sure you'd see uh, maybe an equivalent of like, maybe like the Ember project for, you know, backend plus front end application development um, just because there's an anti-framework bias and like the work isn't being done. And so I don't see some new upstart alternative popping out in the, in the distance. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I think that the, the future of Ruby um, uh, uh, seems pretty bright. Uh, you know, the Ruby three by three stuff where people have found all sorts of creative ways, uh, to make Ruby faster, like the work on, um, uh, JIT experimentation, Aaron Patterson's work on compacting GC. A lot of it's there to kind of keep Ruby, um, up to snuff as like a modern fast enough language for the, for the types of problems it solves. And then on the other end, you know, like I have, this is a, this is like a, a moonshot. This maybe isn't five year realistic, but like when I saw Gary Bernhardt's, uh, the birth and death of JavaScript talk a few years ago where he predicted uh, it, satirically that like JavaScript was going to become the base runtime and with WebAssembly on top, we're going to actually see entire applications emerge. And so like people wouldn't actually ever write raw JavaScript anymore, but rather like mm -hmm. we could get MRI working inside of Chrome on top of WebAssembly and everything's just fast enough that we could build, you know, uh, front end applications with Ruby and are no longer limited to just JavaScript. And we're already seeing that literally this year with people building um, uh, small Rust applications and having a, a, a tool chain from Mozilla to like, you know, compile Rust down to WebAssembly code. Um, and, and so my hope is that that path, the JavaScript is everywhere, the ubiquity of JavaScript actually creates more freedom and creativity, creativity to experiment with different languages without that um, sense that everything must be written in JavaScript. I'd like to add too that I think that we 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 discount the number of companies out there using Ruby today and just not talking about it that much. There's, there's so many, and, and Justin probably gets to talk to more of them than I do, but so many medium and large companies that have large Ruby teams writing Ruby every single day, and um, it's it's solving their business needs and working really effectively for them. And um, they don't they don't make the front page of Hacker News, you know, building this admin dashboard that saves all this time, but uh, it's it's a really really effective tool for them, and I don't see that. I cannot imagine that changing in the next few years. Hmm. Yeah. Well, with the um, about the Ruby three by three, I'm kind of 
you know, now just hoping for the same speed as Ruby 2 with the light of the meltdown and that exploit coming to light. Now I've seen some slowdowns on our environment. So do you think we're going to be able to get past that? Uh, I know Intel has uh, some workarounds and stuff, but, you know, the slowing of the processors, how do you think that's going to affect the community? Well, you know, it doesn't, uh, it's a broad based thing, right? It affects yeah. everybody. Uh, it's the whole processor slowing down. So I think the only people really affected are Intel's short term stock market, you know, stock price takes a hit and then it's long term stock price goes up because it's able to sell us processors that magically fix this problem with like <laughs> a different hardware architecture two years from now. Um, so I don't think, I don't think Ruby is ever going to get singled out for this problem. Um, and I know that there's a lot of people, uh, who are on, you know, the, the Ruby CVE team that like the security team that like really take great care to make sure that, um, if there's ever a security problem, it's not Ruby specific, uh, and, and we, that we in our community don't have egg on our face. And I feel like our track record actually in security is, is really pretty good compared to a lot of other environments. I'd also add to that, um, if you're choosing Ruby, you probably aren't at quite as, um, your CPU intensive needs probably aren't quite as high as if you were choosing another stack. And so you might be a little bit less susceptible to, to picking another solution just based on, um, you know, a 30% hit, let's say, on, on CPU usage. I have one thing I'd like to bring up that's a, a little bit orthogonal to all this, but I just want to, cause, cause the people on this panel have just, you know, their own story, their own kind of Ruby history to share and, while we have, you know, like a 40 links up on our blog of like, like stuff that we liked, uh, or that tickled our, you know, um, uh, nostalgia buttons when, when, when we went and looked back on things we loved about Ruby. I'm curious if there's any kind of forgotten favorites. Uh, uh, I was going to say Ruby gems, but I, I don't mean that literally. I mean, like just, uh, moments and, and, uh, tools and experiences from Ruby's past that you think, uh, say something about, why you love Ruby and and that the community should remember. Ryan Bates, for sure. Ryan Bates yeah. made my career. Um, Yay! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's you know so much of so and I I know a lot of most people. I mean, every single one of us can can attribute Ryan Bates to a lot of our success and excitement. And every single week you think, or every single few days, you'd say, okay, well, what, what am I going to learn now? What has he gone out and done the research and, and, and showed how to do now? Uh, and in all reality, I'm not, I never went to college. I, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly slower when I, when it comes to book reading and, 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 and I built my career on top of, uh, online videos, you know, people like, like Dave uh, here, who's, who has, um, who has a, a drifting Ruby uh, doing a huge service to the community. And those are the type of things that I, I look back with the most fondest memories of, of, of the online training and the free online training and, and, and the very inexpensive online training that helps us become better programmers. And at the time, Ryan was kind of setting the uh, standards as he went, you know, the, 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 how do you do it in rails really was dictated or was determined by, Ryan Bates because of his massive, massive influence. I, I like that. Um, I, I, I used Ryan Bates a lot as well. Um, really influential. It was the confidence he gave us that, okay, I get it. I can see how to grow, grow an app this way. 
you know, there was always that that pressure for the 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 Ruby way, the Rails way, and and finding a way to um to make something, you know, like like Test Devil does that somebody can inherit and that it, it looks and feels like like it should, or or that you know, there's not too many barriers uh, between what I do and what the next person needs to inherit. Um, so I really like that about him. Um, there was something I, I, I this list, by the way. I mean, I've been looking at it. I recommended this talk about three weeks ago on this on this podcast. Uh, it's just a fabulous talk, and I, there's not a lot missing. But there's there was one thing I was thinking about um, the story I was uh, able to watch a little bit firsthand um, at the end of one of the Ruby comps, um, Carl Youngblood and um, um, Toby uh, Kobe Kobe Rehnquist. Uh, we're sitting in the back of the room and they said, man, we really would like to be able to watch these conference talks again and be able to have the the slides there. And so they just mm. created Confreaks, <laughs> you know, and it was that go to spirit, that can do spirit that um, really, you know, we did great things in the community. Uh, so I'm kind of nostalgic for that. Or I remember that that's what our roots are that. Yeah. OK, well, let's just go create something great then. You know, here's a problem. Let's solve it. And um, and that's definitely part of our our heritage. And, you know, for me, I think that um, some of my fondest memories are really working with other languages, you know, doing Pascal and basic and C++ and then moving to Ruby and then seeing just how beautiful it is, you know, how much more enjoyable it was to write the Ruby you know, just uh, the ex- experimentation of just writing simple little Ruby scripts to solve my day-to-day problems that I was having. You know, one of my first little scripts that I wrote was something to just go into uh, each one of my logs and just truncate them. You know, it was just something dumb and something trivial, but, you know, I used Ruby to quickly solve that problem. And, you know, those are my fondest memories of just the experimentation and just that initial quote love at first sight for it one thing one thing along these lines i did not get to share in the talk because it's uh maybe it's a little bit too vain and podcasts are long enough and freeform enough to uh, uh have a little vanity i guess uh the thing that got me hooked in the ruby community was the um kind of underground network of meetups all over the place uh, i remember in 2006, going to one of the first meetings of the Great Lakes Ruby Brigade or Great Lakes Ruby Group in, in Grand Rapids and meeting people like Aaron Schapp from Elevator Up, who still runs Elevator Up and meeting Daniel Morrison, uh, 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 who still runs Collective Idea in Holland, Michigan and Brandon Keepers, who's like the open source director guy at GitHub still. Um, and, uh, you know, Mark Van Holstein and Zach Dennis, who run Mutually Human out of Grand Rapids still, you know, like that community like started with Hey, we've got these Rails apps, and sometimes our, you know, like I remember the problem of the day was uh, the gem installs on production tend to be older than the gem installs locally, and then production just breaks randomly all the time. How could we not do that? And somebody gave like a little presentation on how to synchronize your gem versions. This is pre RVM and gem sets, much less bundler. Uh, how to sync all that stuff using this new tool called Capistrano. And uh, that kind of knowledge sharing was just infectious and contagious. And I saw it repeated as I traveled all over the country and, and, and the world uh, that that was special about Ruby. And I don't think was ever quite emulated uh, quite the same way in any other language environment. Yeah, I would agree with that. 
and uh, uh, and to, to to kind of take it to the next level, Webastrono. Webastrono was was a godsend because Capistrano is fun, but Webastrono is great, right? <laughs> what is Webastrono? I think that right, I've heard of that yet. It was it's just a web interface to sit on top of Capistrano. Um, I used to use it a lot at uh, a company back in the early to 2010s. So it was it was really 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 handy. I think an a, uh, an analog to that to the the community aspect that Justin just mentioned is the the kind of open source by default mentality that it seems like. Um, so I I started with Ruby. So this this came to as a surprise to me that like as we were uh, as we were looking at resources, a lot of people were talking about Ruby is really great for open source. Um, and I thought, well, what, what makes something great for open source? Um, it seems like that, that's just like a normal thing. Like we should just be able to, you know, push it up to GitHub and, uh, it should just be easy. Um, and it, it was the tooling around the, um, open source, um, having things like Ruby gems and having this like bundler and just making it super, super easy just to have some code and, and push it up to the world and somebody else can use it. And it seemed like, uh, some of the history predated me, so I, I can't speak exactly to it. But it seems like Ruby definitely was on the cutting edge of that. Um, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, if, if there were other other efforts there um, that predated Ruby's. Well, I, I think it's definitely the case. I, I, it's reminding me of a, a time when I um, was asked by an executive, why should we open source this project? And I had to actually think about all the value that we create. And it... It is. It's kind of default. Um, I mean, there were things that happened before, but a lot of those licenses were really restrictive or careful or carefully worded by um, lawyers versus the MIT license, which is common in Ruby, which is, yeah, take it. Just don't come at me for it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just the clarity that we're, we're, we're building something together and there's a lot of value that, that, that we can create together. Um, and having that perspective is... Um, I think huge in the community, but also um, Ruby Ruby grasped it early, and and it seemed to to always be in the in the DNA of the the community. One other really interesting bit that I found uh, in the same sort of vein is the the connection to the Agile community and Ruby. So, um, dating myself again, I came into my first job, and like we had standups and we had Agile like things. Um, and to me, that's, that's again the default. And it seems to be the default at most of the clients that I'm at, especially the ones writing Ruby. Um, and it's been a lot of fun to read about, um, teams that, that were not like that. And, you know, to this day aren't, and Ruby is still influencing those teams in the Ruby community as we move out. Uh, someone had mentioned earlier, we're still, still influencing people. Um, so I just thought that was an interesting, interesting thing, connection between, uh, the Agile community and, and the Ruby community. You know, and it's easy to take for granted um, what the dynamic nature of Ruby was and the meta programming and just, you know, the core idea that seems to fit Agile really well. You know, that, that of course we're, we're, we're malleable. Of course we're going to share ideas and, and make something better. You know, and it fits the, the Agile um, rhythm really, really well that, that we're, we're working together. We're solving an actual problem that somebody's going to consume rather than we're building a, you know, a foundation that's going to be solid and untouchable. I mean, I mean, yeah, we want uh, dependable code, but um, but it seems that 
Yeah, Ruby and Agility does. It really does work well together. So what are some of the things that uh, new Ruby developers, uh, in your opinion, are kind of missing that maybe some of the more seasoned people have gotten over the years? Uh, what kind of context do you think they're tending to lack? But I think that Josh just raised a really good point, which is I think it's kind of a shame that um, uh, Agile, to the extent that so so in the enterprise, Agile became this like snake oil of like increasingly complex schemes by which people would sell books and training and consulting, and now you have like this safe monstrosity which looks exactly like you know ridiculous schemes that that uh, uh, Agile was actually like designed to replace. Um, but in the open source kind of bred ecosystems and Ruby uh, and JavaScript are, are among those, you see instead that Agile has become ideology. Like, so Josh, when he started, he was doing agile things, he guesses, but he only even knows that now because he's had the benefit of, you know, working with other people who, who kind of can ex- explain the, the background, the history, the thinking. You know, when you read uh, Extreme Programming Explained, it spends a ton of time talking about values and principles the thought behind the activities that they chose and that the, the bedrock was the values and the principles were layered on top of those. And then the practices were meant to be malleable and change and respond. But nowadays, the, the, uh, you know, things like pull request workflows and standups and scrum and story points and storyboards, uh, all of that so, uh, rigidly adhered to on so many teams because they just kind of were handed that on day one and, and didn't really get the story behind it and were never able to really master how to improvise on top. Uh, and so uh, uh, really getting sort of like a remedial agile education about like where where a lot of the stuff come from, came from, why it was necessary at the time, like what that moment in history meant, but like what are the takeaways for like how a modern team should work together? Um, that's something that I, I find a conversation I have to have with a lot of... Um, uh, I w- literally younger programmers who just weren't around for that sort of sea change. Well, I was just going to mention, um, I was going to save this for the picks, um, but I wanted to, you, you would ask what, what context um, people are missing today. And a huge, a huge piece is Jim Wyrick. And I cannot stress enough. I'd seen yeah. um, one or two, one or two of Jim's talks um, previously. And um, while I was doing the research for this, I, I watched one or two. Um, and then I just took a day and I just watched everything on Conspreaks that he'd ever, he'd ever given. Um, the, the technical topics were always brilliant and insightful. Um, uh, but there was something past that too. There was like just this air about him. I, I never had the pleasure of meeting him. Like you could just tell how he spoke and how he would interact with the audience. Like he was just so, so excited to be there. He had a love for people. He had a love for Ruby. Um, it, it inspired me. It, it got me thinking like, okay, what, what can I do to make the community, um, to, to, uh, to be this way with the community, just like, just like he was doing. Um, I'm not sure that, um, uh, I'm not sure exactly what we can, what we can do with that, but I think that we should all be just using him as an example still. And I'm going to be reminding myself, uh, you know, to, to watch him speak because it's, it's just so, um, uh, gratifying to and inspiring to to see someone who cares so much and has so much love. You know, I last night um, driving in was actually thinking about him, Jim Myrick. 
Um, I, I uh, flew to Texas once for a conference and took a, a, an all-day class on testing from him. And it was so compassionate the way he taught. He leaned over my shoulder and, and, and looked at my code and, and asked me questions so that it empowered me. You know, that it wasn't about him being the smart one in the room. It was him making me the smart one in the room. And, and I, I absolutely agree that love, that commitment, that, that joy, that boyish joy he, he brought, you know, Hey, look, I did this thing. I love how he would talk about rake, you know, like, Ooh, that's an interesting problem. And he goes away for a couple hours, comes back. Hey, what do you think about this? You know, just that boyish joy of creating something and that, that collaborative way. And I think that, that, that carrying that torch is important, you know, that in our, in our careers, that, um, as we speak, as we show up at meetups, as we train our teams, as we bring in new people and are inclusive, that we have that, that perspective that that person can, you know, our, you know, if, if it's our job to be the mentor or the trainer or the leader, that, that our job is to, to lift them so that they see the way Jim taught us to be. Um, I love that, that that part of our our heritage absolutely and use the use the term compassionate teacher and it reminded me of a of a clip from um from matt's and he said he said why do we love ruby and then he followed it up with wait love love a programming language that's really that's really kind of a strange concept you know this is just you know ones and zeros um but there definitely is a theme um Matt's Matt's has it. Jim certainly had it. Of no, this is this is about people. This is about loving people, being compassionate to people, and using a really great tool that that we all love to use collectively. And our organizations can't afford not to have our whole selves at at the workplace. I mean, we've got to be there as a whole person that's compassionate, committed, clear. You know, that's that's balanced and and contributing and and working one with another. I mean, it's not just plunking down code you know it's it's being involved and being committed which which you know that's a huge part of what we do and um and that's why things projects go forward that's why agility works that's why teams coalesce so yeah absolutely oh man thank you for bringing up jim well do we have any final points that y'all want to talk about should we move on to fix it all right, let's do it. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now, and it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. All right, Eric, do you want to start us off? Uh, yeah, I've, 
I've been on a uh, on a TV show binge uh, picks lately. Pick pick binge. Um, and, uh, the most recent one that I've, two of them, two of them that I love. One of them was actually, I learned about, uh, for, as a pick from another one of our guests. I can't remember who it was, but, um, Bojack Horseman. Um, I, I, I heard about that on Ruby Rogues. It intrigued me. I watched the whole, all four seasons or five seasons, whatever it was. And it's, it is, it, 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 it reminds me of the old MTV uh, mini series anime, uh, called the max, right? The max was, was, was a fantastic, um, piece of art, uh, that was put into video form, uh, on uh, through MTV. And, and in the same, in the same line, uh, I think that Bojack Horseman is actually art, um, and, and a really interesting insight into humanity, uh, it's, it's really cool that these, you know, I feel like such a grown up watching these shows. <laughs> I just learned so much watching my cartoons. It's great. <laughs> and the other show that I've, that I've gotten into, um, and it's probably, it's, it's, it's weird because I think I got into it, uh, the opposite way. So the show is called Orville. Orville is, is, a, is like a Star Trek show, right? But it's, it's a parody of Star Trek. But the point is that it's not super, super funny. It's just high quality content. And most people I imagine are Trekkies and they're like, oh, I like Trekkie. You know, I like Star Trek and I like Family Guy. So I'm going to watch Orville. Uh, but for me, it's kind of the opposite. I, I like I like Family Guy and now I like Orville. So now I kind of want to watch Star Trek. So anyway, it's it's got to <laughs> those are my two picks. Sorry, I rambled and ranted there. But yeah, very, very fun. Yeah. I think Oroville is more Star Trek-y than the new Star Trek Discovery is. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, My wife and I came to the exact same agreement. <laughs> but both are great shows. Uh, David, Richards, what are your picks? So I'm going to follow Eric's lead here and pick a, a TV series. And uh, before you boo me, I'm going to tell you that somebody smart reminded me that this is the most Shakespearean um storytelling that we have in a generation and uh it's gilmore girls and i love that show and i didn't know why i loved it until i took a minute and looked at it i mean yeah it's just people talking but it's funny and it's fast and it's ridiculous and it uses the same kind of ridicule that shakespeare used and um it it gives us a big big mirror and if we're going to build communities uh that work, <laughs> you know, then sometimes it, it really works to take a look at how we're affecting each other. And that was the the whole point of Gilmore Girls was they said, hey, we're going to make a show about a mother and daughter. Yes, but we're going to make a show about how their choices affect each other. And it's not like cautionary tell, tell you how to be. They make a lot of mistakes. But it's anyway, it's fun. It's joyful. And it's um, easy to to have it on while I'm programming. You know, I can I can have my laptop on and Gilmore Girls on and I'm a very happy programmer. <laughs> Um, <laughs> the other pick I'm going to make is, um, uh, uh, Julia. It's, it's based on, um, a programming language called Julia. And so there's a blog article I'll share. It's on machine learning and programming languages. And it's the same concept of, um, using, you know, good tools, uh, for the right problems. You know, I've been, I love Python for a lot of my data work and, um, I love Clojure and I love Elixir and I love a lot of these tools that are great. Julia is doing an amazing job of, of building a very useful 
dynamic language that works really well when you have a lot of numbers you're computing in. in um, so anyway, I'll, I'll share that with you guys as well. Awesome. And Justin? Okay, I got a few picks today. Try to pick some stuff from different categories. One is one that we weren't able to find a spot for in the in the presentation, but I think it's a ton of fun. Um, and I've got really fond memories of of pairing with uh, uh, non programmers on this bit. It was another Ryan Bates um, uh, 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 joint as well in the uh, gem Ruby Warrior. Uh, Ruby Warrior is like a little CLI game where you, uh, from the command line and with just a single Ruby file, you uh, define a warrior subclass and, or maybe just a class that's like duct typed appropriately uh, that can do certain things. Like you, you program it to uh, move through multiple levels of this tower, uh, sort of like you're creating like a little intelligence, like what to do when you sense an enemy in front of you and like how to kind of explore these mazes so that you get to the end and survive. Uh, and you have hit points and all that. And so it's a really engaging, fun little game. Uh, and it's like legit difficult. Uh, and and what, one of the great things about it is that after uh, you master like the beginning areas, you start to realize that you're going to need some kind of abstraction uh, to, to, to break up the complexity. And so it, it becomes like a really fun refactoring exercise. Um, so if you've never taken the time to, to check out the Ruby Warrior gem, it still totally works uh, and is a lot of fun. Um, uh, I'll pick a game too. Uh, I, lately, uh, I've been, um, incredibly motivated to put on a VR headset and headphones and just shut the entire world out. I don't know why that might be, uh, uh, in this era that we live in, but I've been playing the hell out of Skyrim VR for PSVR, even though Skyrim is six years old and I put 200 hours into it the first time I'm somehow already like, you know, a hundred hours into a brand new uh, a save file, and I'm just finding it super duper immersive and engaging, uh, and and successfully tricking my brain into thinking that I do not live in 2018 America uh, every hour of the day, which has been uh, uh, welcome. Uh, and then my last pick is uh, a little coffee pot that I bought. So you know, on the the range of sort of like artisanal uh, uh, hoity-toity hipster ways to make coffee. The smallest one that I have available to me is an AeroPress, and that's what I use typically every day. But whenever I have like a guest over, uh, or if I want to make multiple cups of coffee, uh, I don't really have a good answer for that. And I didn't want to go like full blown, get a Chemex or get a, get another big machine for it. And so I got this, uh, really cool, uh, Osaka pour over coffee maker that is supposedly, though I never saw it in, in Osaka, like a, a method of pour over coffee that has got like a really, really nice, um, uh, steel mesh, uh, a reusable filter. So I don't have to deal with like filter replacement. Um, that, 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 that makes just, you know, like eight cups of coffee and that's it. So, uh, and it's like small, low profile and I can keep it on the counter without worrying about it. So I've been really, really pleased with that. Awesome. And Josh? I've got a few. I've got a couple technical picks and one game. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning that I've been really enthralled with Elm recently. And if you're not familiar, Elm is a compile to JavaScript language. Um, the best the best pitch I think I can give Elm is I'm not very good at JavaScript. So I spend a lot of time like in the Chrome console trying to figure out like what is going on and why my JavaScript, like if I click the button, it's not doing the thing. You just don't really have that experience with Elm. Like once it compiles, you like tab over to Chrome and it works and it's really, really gratifying and it's a lot of fun. Um, the compiler is just fantastic. Uh, I really can't recommend it enough. Um, the, the learning curve is super gradual and you can just jump right in. Um, I, I definitely encourage you to try it. 
Uh, my second pick is a text editor. Interestingly enough, I've been spending a lot of time with Space Max recently, and it's a lot of fun. So uh, I, I really love uh, them bindings and moving around my editor. And so Space Max is a Emacs configuration that uses all of like the them bindings, but puts this really nice like Emacsy thing around it, um, where um, it's super discoverable and it's a lot of fun to use. Um, uh, it, it's just a lot of fun. So I would definitely encourage that. The last pick that I've got is a game that my dad actually told me to download yesterday. And so I proceeded to spend like four hours playing it last night. It's called Mini Metro on iOS. It's like this little like subway builder game. It's really simple and um, it's kind of mindless, but it's kind of puzzly at the same time. Uh, you basically just like have this little subway and st- stops keep getting added to it. And you have to decide like whether or not to extend existing lines or like draw new lines to them. Uh, it's a lot of fun and it's really uh, it's a nice way to like end your day uh, with a little uh, mindlessness. Uh, and that's all for me. Awesome. And I have two picks. One is a game called A Good Snowman is is Hard to Build. And it's a little puzzle thing where you have to basically build a snowman on each level. And it was something that I was showing my four-year-old how to play. And she actually started, you know, solving some of these more complex puzzles. So it was a lot of fun, you know, playing with her. And uh, it's for iOS. I don't know if it's for Android. Uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a fun game. And the other one is uh, DOSstrap, which is a Bootstrap 3 or Bootstrap 4 theme that basically transforms your web application into the old MS-DOS 6.2 look and feel. So if you remember that blue screen with, you know, really ugly and stuff, uh, I came across this the other day and I think it's just hilarious and pretty well done too. So it just kind of shows the power of, you know, you don't have to use the standard old look and feel of Bootstrap. You can customize it to your own look and feel uh, if you have enough time and effort. All right. Well, uh, Josh and Justin, uh, if people want to get a hold of you and find you, where do they go and look? You can find me at Josh T. Greenwood on Twitter.com. And I am, uh, uh, on almost all things, my last name, Searles, which my wife, who's a teacher, has learned the mnemonic of spelling uh, verbally with, uh, uh, it's like the word pearls, but with an S instead of the P. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show today. It was a lot of fun talking with y'all. Definitely. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, you guys. All right. We'll catch you later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.